0: Hello, and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello, my name's Neil Selwyn, and in this episode of Meet the Education Researcher, I'm talking with Professor Pat Thompson from the University of Nottingham. Alongside her research on school leadership, creative learning and arts education, Pat's renowned for her public work in demystifying academic writing, career building, and other practical aspects of education research. Her blog and Twitter feed are essential sources of advice and support for education researchers around the world. In this conversation, we talk about the current state of working in education research, but also I wanted to hear a little more about Pat's own scholarship. So first off, I asked Pat what she considers to be the main issues and themes underpinning her own work.
1: thing I've been most concerned with, um, not only since I've been in higher education, but also when I was in schools, has is to do with social justice. So I've been really, I guess, motivated, um, variously made enthusiastic, all the way through to being incredibly angry um, about why it is and how it is that the education system generally does so badly for lots and lots of young people and that how that really, I guess, damages their life chances. So that's really the thing that uh, I've been concerned with. And I guess having been a school principal, I tend to think about social justice in, as being partly about the kind of policy frame. So it's partly about what you're able to do by policy, and policy is more or less enabling Um, of action around social justice. And, of course, I'm interested in how it is that organisations run um, and so what kind of autonomy and capacity you've got to do stuff that makes a difference in an organisation like a school. And then I'm interested in what happens in classrooms, really, so I'm interested. But these days, that's broadened out to be kind of like what happens in learning situations more generally, I think. So I'm interested in, but I guess, pedagogies and curriculum, really.
0: Yeah, so it's interesting you talked about broadening it out from the school. And I was talking to Stephen Ball a few podcasts ago, and he was talking about how at the end of his career he was kind of thinking that perhaps we need to give up on the notion of the school uh, and, and think otherwise um i mean but you you still have a faith in kind of making schools better
1: well i think as long as they exist it's probably for me not okay to give up on them but i think it is always a question about where the kind of points are at which you might make a difference so there's always I think, a process of kind of trying to read the situation and to see where there's capacity to actually make change and where there isn't.
0: So I'm really interested in this idea of, as you say, making a change and making a difference. I mean, has there been a project where you really think you have made a difference or you have kind of cracked something? I mean, where, where have you kind of nailed it? <laughs> uh,
1: well, I mean, the obvious answer is to say, no, You never, you never, know, you, you never crack it, do you? But I've written 3 things and done 3 bits of work really which have ended up in books which which have been really angry angry work I think and the first was around my PhD and that so that was you know mid a mid career school principal bit of research really about the demise of the disadvantaged schools program in Australia in the early 90s, early to mid 90s, and what that was going to do to disadvantaged schools. So, um, And eventually that turned into um, schooling the Rust Belt kids. And I think that's kind of now probably historically interesting, but there's a sort of story at the start of that book where... I you know, I made up these two children coming to school to try and make Bourdieu into a story that people could understand, and I invented this sort of idea of virtual school bags, which I suspect just about anyone who's done teacher education in Australia in the last 20 years has been subjected to, um, but I kind of think about that as my one good idea, really, um, because it does seem to have some traction with people. And I guess the other two books, there's only about one a decade, really. Um, And the next one was a book called Heads on the Block. And that was really a result of coming to England. And I was just so appalled by the way that head teachers, as they're called here, um, are treated, you know, and the way they're just summarily kind of dismissed and bollocked in the media and just, I mean, treated really badly, I have to say. Um, So, you know, I wrote a book about that called Heads on the Block, which hasn't been a great critical... I mean, it was, you know, it hasn't been a great seller, I have to say, and I think that's largely because it was so depressing, but also because I think the school leadership field always wants to be positive. It's sort of always about what you can do and how you can be effective and how you can inspire and all. And there was this kind of grim story of (laughs) people... (laughs) you know just managing risks but i think it has real resonance now actually in kind of lockdown time you know but that what actually matters in schools is is the human dimension of them you know and it is you can see how the public schooling and the public health system run on the backs of committed staff um i think at the moment that's obvious for it for everyone to see and I guess the other book I think that might be important is the book that I've just written, which is about corruption um, in the English school system and um, and what I call corrupted practices. So things that are meant to be efficient and effective and produce equitable change do exactly the reverse. And it, but again, it was kind of born out of anger. So I think um, just at the sheer the sheer kind of gobsmacking yeah awfulness that does exist in the in the system it's a systemic problem it's not you know it's always put down to a few bad apples but it's absolutely a systemic problem
0: so it's interesting that you described your your kind of most your best work as your most angry work. So I mean, what space is there for a kind of early career researcher to engage in angry work? Angry work is not kind of what the academy, yeah, you know, the neoliberal university wants you to do. How do you do it?
1: Well, I think in one sense you've you've got to you've got to be able to put that aside and then do if you're going to do something. I think if you're going to do critical work, um, you know, and Bourdieu says this that you you have to be as expert and as well evidenced as you possibly can be and so I think it is if you're going to write that kind of book you do have to do um, a lot of work in terms of making sure it's well grounded in the literature that you take note of all the possible objections and yeah that you draw on the widest possible kind of I guess theoretical resources you can to try and help explain Um, so I think in some ways Anger kind of propels propels me, and I think it probably propels a lot of people to actually just be super careful about what they're doing, really. Um, you have to be able to defend it because you know you're going to potentially just going to go and get bollocked for it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, you have to kind of back yourself up. Now, um, I just wanted to kind of talk a bit more prosaically about, them in the craft of being an academic and in particular writing. And I'm really impressed that you've kind of stuck with some kind of long-term partners in terms of writing. How have you done that? How have you kept these professional writing partnerships going?
1: Yeah, I think Barbara and I did a set of interviews with people who'd been co-writers for a long period of time. And... The one that always stuck with me most was an an interview with Michelle Fine and Lois Swass. And Lois talked about Michelle as being her um, lost twin. They'd been separated at birth. And she describes reading a manuscript, actually. She didn't know Michelle, reading a manuscript that Michelle had submitted to Teachers College Press, and Lois was one of the readers. And saying, and saying then, this is my lost twin. So there was that kind of, I guess, harmonisation of, of, of ways of thinking and ways of arguing um, that's at the heart of it. And I think the, the women are much more, who do work together, are much more prepared, interestingly, to talk about this as a form of intimacy. It's a form of academic intimacy, I think, actually, um, that, yeah, you just get to know somebody. You you are in a relationship with somebody. I mean, the 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 men who we interviewed, I have to say, were a little, a little um jumpy about <laughs> about describing it in those terms. But you know, when they talk about what they do, um, it's absolutely, you know, what happens. It's like it's for some of them. You know, it is as it was with Barbara and I. It was finishing each other's bloody sentences. You know, (laughs) that much, that much on the same page, really.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's not an instrumental thing, I guess it can't be. Now, I wanted to talk about your kind of generosity as a scholar. I mean, you've got a stellar reputation as something as a kind of, of a guru for education researchers, particularly in terms of writing. And I think what you describe as the writing that must be done. I mean, are there any common themes? to the advice that you always find yourself giving? I mean, is there kind of one or two things that you, you always come back to? Is it just about being organised or managing your time or, as you say, having good relations?
1: Oh, uh, bonjour. It's understanding the game you're in, Um, I think, really, and, and what that entails. So I think, you know, while it is a lot of, I think, the writing work is around... Um, those kind of practical questions and there's a lot about how time and organisation and and that's all really important but I think that's in a sense that's operational and I think if you don't actually understand the kind of rhetorical endeavour that you're engaged in which I think writing instruction and linguistic scholars actually do see writing in this way and, you know, I absolutely benefited from, although i taught English for a really long time, taught kids to write, you know, poetry and newspapers and fiction and, you know, I was always the creative writing person. I have to say even when I was a school principal I always had a class doing mad sort of writing projects. But, you know, I learnt a lot about linguistics from Barbara Kamler because that's her background Um, And I've had to learn a lot myself, read quite a lot. But I think it's that combination of understanding the politics or the, yeah, the politics of of the process of writing within the academy. So what the academy is about and how writing's shaped and framed, it's not a neutral practice. You know, there are obviously things that you have to do that, that are, are about actually getting published, for for example. But it, it is also at the same time about changing that game too. But I think that's really what I think I'm mostly um, concerned with, is that while I do talk about plans and goals and space and all of that stuff, and I have a kind of geographer's interest in some of the materiality of writing, um... It's primarily, I think, and the part of the reason for blogging and making this public and not leaving it in books, academic books that get sold for a large amounts of money, is I think it is about making the rules of the game available to people in places where they don't have access to that kind of information, in in books, they don't have the books, they can't come to the workshops, they're in institutions that don't have, um, you know, writing workshops available for people. And so, I, yeah, I think that's really what's been a lot of the motivation
0: I mean, but there's a lot to demystify if you if we're trying to demystify and be transparent i mean i guess it's also up to senior academics like us to also push back and as you say try and alter the nature of the game or not make it a game at all but i mean it's incredibly difficult isn't it well
1: yeah i mean i think you know you can sort of we're, we're at an interesting point i think really aren't we where a lot of people are um Providing information, detailed information about the political economy of academic publishing, and there are obvious moves to, you know, provide things that are open access, um, but in in but I think the audit regimes work against that, um, and the way in which, you know, the h indices work, for example. I mean, I have to say, I think. Australia is actually particularly bad in in noxious toxic. I mean, I'm always shocked when I see, and I do see quite a few, not only grant applications but also applications for promotion from Australia. You know, and they their tones and people are talking about their h index and the you know, the side the citation levels of the journals they're publishing in and i wouldn't see that from one year to another in the uk and we think about the uk as being a place which is really audit dominated but because of the the you know the the research excellence framework exercise which has its own toxicities and rotten kind of effects in institutions but I think the kind of net in Australia is quite tight around individuals and and to the point where it does seem to dominate much more people's choice of where they publish, what they publish, who they publish with, than it might in in a place like the UK where you do only have to produce, you know, four or five things every seven years, I mean, that are available for audit.
0: No, it's really good to hear you say that. And I think the more people that say that out loud, the, the, the better. I mean, have you seen that thing the Australian do, which is absolutely insane, where they just get some people to go through Google Scholar and then they have the best education researcher, the best education leadership researcher, the best early childhood. And it's it's just, you know why they're doing it, to sell newspapers, but the universities are lapping it up.
1: Yeah, I th- so there's a, something, something you know, very kind of rotten at the core of the way that I think audit audit of institutional performance has been combined with the performance management of individual academics um, and judgments about you know which are then used as a basis for promotion presumably salary increments and other things you know and I look at my some of the colleagues that I know who are profs um but you know i see the targets that they've got you know seven referee journal articles a year and i just think this is yeah. lunacy
0: even a university talking about kpis uh, there's something that's a bit off there but anyway finally we haven't just come here to moan about academia i mean i'm looking being positive and looking forward i mean where do you see the future of education research going and where can we be hopeful what words of encouragement might you have for a kind of early career researcher that's listening to us gas on and and panic? <laughs>
1: I, well, I think I think one of the really good things that's happened over the last little while, um, and I suppose over my career, you know when I started work, there were people in universities and in school systems, a few of them, kind of putting forward this idea of um of practitioner research, of the education profession, particularly people in schools, becoming much more, Um, involved in knowledge production about teaching. And, you know, 50 years later, I think we can start to see some of that, I mean, like actually happening, you know, the kind of burgeoning um, publication um, of books by people working in schools. I mean, like 20 years ago, you could hardly find a book written by somebody in a school um there's loads now there's you know teachers blogging there's teachers producing resources for each other on YouTube so and and I think where you know one of the things I think that Australians do do pretty well is establish partnerships with people in schools and I I think being able to whereas I think in the in the UK, for various policy-induced reasons, as well as kind of institutional histories, um, <clears throat> I think that's that's kind of less the case in the in the UK. But you know, the the possibilities I think for um, people working in higher education with people in schools, with people in schools, much more interested in knowledge production and what that means. That seems to me to be A really positive and productive thing, and really, the best kind of hope we've got against the kind of forces of commercialisation, um, and one best solutions and snake oil salespeople and all the rest. So, it does seem to me that we don't often enough celebrate that kind of fact. We're we're a better qualified profession, we're a more interested. Um, an active kind of profession in our own professional knowledge production, and and I think for early career researchers, wherever they actually they locate themselves in that, I think that's probably um, what makes it um, an, an interesting place to work.
0: Which brings us back to everything you were saying at the beginning about making a change and making a difference. I mean, well, that's a wonderful note to end on. Thanks ever so much for taking the time to do that, Pat. Um, I look forward to reading your blog for, for much longer.
1: Okay, thank you.